Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. They used to tell me I was building a dream, and so I followed the mob. When there was earth to plow or guns to bear, I was always there, right on the job. They used to tell me I was building a dream, with peace and glory ahead. Why should I be standing in line? Just waiting for bread. Hello and welcome to episode number 60 of The Action Environmentalist. I'm Seth Moser-Katz, joined by my co-host Justin Ritchie. And today we are talking with Chris Hedges, Morris Berman, and Dmitry Orlov. One of the themes that we always come back to is looking at the forces and dynamics of the global collapse that we are experiencing. And Chris Hedges and Morris Berman and Dmitry Orlov are all approaching it from similar but slightly different angles. And Chris Hedges, as a journalist, has been to so many different countries that have been through political collapses. Morris Berman has been writing about the dark ages of the United States since the beginning of the 21st century. His book, The Twilight of American Culture, came out in 2001, so he saw what was happening before so many other people. And Dmitry Orlov has been writing about the collapse of the American empire based on his experiences in the USSR and seeing the USSR fall apart since 2004, 2005. And so all of these people together really have been pioneers in this field of studying how all of these complex systems fall apart. And that's why we're really excited to have them all in one episode today. So we're going to start out with Chris Hedges and Morris Berman in a dialogue that we had together, and then we're going to move on to our conversation with Dmitry Orlov about his new book, The Five Stages of Collapse. So we started out asking Chris Hedges about his experiences in war-torn countries and how they relate to his experiences here in the United States today. Say, don't you remember they called me Al? It was Al all the time. Hey, don't you remember? I'm your pal, buddy, can you spare a dime? Any society engaged in a conflict adapts to the demands of the security and surveillance state. So the United States has, since the end of World War I, existed in a kind of state of permanent war, the psychosis of permanent war, where you're constantly attempting to ferret out both internal and external enemies. First it was communism, now it's terrorism. 
So that psychosis of permanent war is just a very effective way to destroy any kind of an open society, and, and that's what's crippled the Middle East, that's what destroyed Israel, destroyed Syria, Egypt, after the creation of the State of Israel, and we're no exception. What's happened, of course, is that the hollowing out of the country from the inside, the rise of these corporate monoliths that have no loyalty to the nation-state, means that, like all empires, we're collapsing from within, and then you bring back the harsher forms of control on the margins of empire into empire itself. Uh, this is, again, a classic kind of scenario within empire. Thucydides wrote about it when he talked about the destruction of Athenian democracy, and that's how you see militarized police forces, that's how you get the NDAA, that's how you get the FISA Amendment Act. So there are many examples throughout human history that are a good indicator of the kind of the late stage of disease that the American empire is in. It seems to me so counterproductive to have these open-ended wars that just guzzle resources and have whole populations that are just disenfranchised from so many dis important rights and things that the country is supposed to guarantee. Why do we decide to do that? Why do the leaders of our country decide to move in those directions instead of concentrating those resources in a more productive vein? Well, because for a handful of corporations, it's extremely productive and extremely profitable. Halliburton doesn't really give a damn whether we're losing the war in Afghanistan, which we are. It's good for business. Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, I mean, that, again, is an old story. For the power elite and for those who profit from these enterprises that may destroy the nation, but they don't give a damn. For them, it's very good for business. And, and that's why these endless wars are continuing. They don't have any popular support at all. We see the violence at an increasing rate as U.S. society is breaking down, as the empire is imploding, and we see these mass shootings. Do you think that gun control would really change this? Do you think that if we you know, make guns harder to get through legal means that it's actually going to change? And for both of you, really, what are the root causes of these mass shootings and outbreaks of violence? Before we get into Sandy Hook and all that, I wanted to piggyback on what Chris said with regard to the, the logic of opposition and the kind of psychosis of war that he talked about. It ha actually has very deep historical roots, pre-corporate, and that is that when the American continent was settled, the folks that came over late 16th, early 17th centuries, it was within the logic of opposition as well. In other words, they came over saying that the old country, which actually they, in biblical terms, they compared to Egypt. The old country is decadent and corrupt, and we're going to build a new Jerusalem. And so the psychology was one, one of opposition from the very beginning. And then, of course, you know, after you leave Europe behind or Britain behind, as this is the bad guys and we're the good guys, you then get into Native Americans who are savages and don't have civilization, and so they have to be wiped out. And we have pursued that logic of opposition for a very long time. The real problem to me is not only the, the corporate and economic dimension that Chris just talked about, but also a kind of a psychology, Hegel called it negative identity. And by negative, he didn't mean bad. He meant that you get an identity through opposition. It hardens your ego boundaries. You know who you are by saying who you're not. That was the idea. And we've been doing that for a very long time. The problem is that, as Hegel pointed out, you never get to know what the affirmative side is. 
So you know yourself through negative identity, but you never really have a positive identity. And once that happens, it gets filled with whatever is going on in the culture, which in the United States has been consumerism, commercialism of some type. And so finally, that's a very thin gruel. I mean, that's not much of an identity. And finally, we are playing out the final stages of that today where we really have no idea of who we are. Certainly after the crash of 29, there were lots of suicides and so on because people don't know in the United States don't know who they are without money or or buying things. And something similar is happening today where you have one out of five Americans unemployed with really no prospect of finding a job for the next 10 years, according to almost every economist. And there is a kind of emptiness at the center that really pervades the United States And that is the vortex into which all of this is disappearing. So even the the Halliburtons and so on are playing the same game and caught in the same type of logic, profit or no profit. There's a kind of, I call it unconscious programs, where these these people are like marionettes on strings. You know, Lloyd Blankfein or, or Mr. Obama, they're just marionettes on strings that are being pulled along by this unconscious programming. And... What's not really possible is to turn around and say something like, what's going on here? What are we actually doing? I remember during the 2008 presidential campaign, it was a momentary slip, a moment of honesty that Mr. Obama had when he talked about uh, workers in Pennsylvania, you know, being out of jobs, out of work and turning to guns and religion. Now, you know, that's so obvious. I call it Marxism 101. I mean, it couldn't be more obvious. But the minute he said that, John McCain and Hillary Clinton jumped down his throat. Oh, the religion is a good thing and the people need their guns and so on. Not let's now have a forum on what substitute satisfaction is. Oh, no, we're going to never talk about that. And so he realized, I mean, Obama realized very quickly, hey, the name of the game is power. And that means you don't say things that are true. What you do is you say things that make people feel good. So there can never be a kind of addressing of those unconscious programs in that momentum. I'm quite sure that for every book that I sell, Ann Coulter sells about 100,000. I mean, that's, that's just how the logic plays out. Yeah, and Chris, I wanted to take what you were just mentioning there. Look at your examples of going to war-torn countries in your war journalism, and you've seen economic systems as they break down. What was that experience like? Could you speak to that a little bit? Well, living in the midst of disintegrating societies upends the moral order. You essentially create a gangster political class. All the people that have worked hard all of their lives and saved money uh, and had steady contributions to society are broke and standing in bread lines and the people who run guns and shoot people are whizzing through the streets and SUVs with tinted windows. I mean, that's what happens. And when societies disintegrate, that the upper level or the elite becomes completely criminalized, both in terms of the political class and the economic class. And so I think that as American society has unraveled, you've seen a freeing of kind of constraints of power, and it has replicated this kind of criminality, whether it's on Wall Street, whether it's in the security and surveillance state, which has abrogated to itself the right to assassinate American citizens, warrantless wiretapping, 
uh, the use of the Espionage Act to shut down whistleblowers, the Section 1021 of the NDAA, which permits the military to seize American citizens, strip them of due process, hold them indefinitely. So, again, that's characteristic of disintegrated societies, that you create a criminal elite. And I think, again, we're very far down that road. Yeah, and I'd like to explore that a little bit. In many ways, we see these same kind of systems, these same kind of gangster elite political classes emerging in the United States in many ways. Chris, in your book that you wrote, you kind of illustrated some of the lesser represented poorer classes in the United States. And that very much contrasts to that gangster political class that you were just talking about. Do you think we'll see a more of a dichotomy emerging as the system continues to break down? Will these class dichotomies become more explicit? Well, what you're creating is a form of neo-feudalism, which replicates the power structure set in place in Orwell's dystopian novel 1984, where you have an inner party of about 2 to 4%. You have an outer party that's the security apparatus, corporate managers, public relations, in essence, propagandists. And then 85% of the country is reduced to being proles, hanging on by their fingertips. That's what we're creating both nationally and globally. I mean, we have created a global system where the elites have no particular loyalty to the nation state, any one nation state anymore. They're quite happy to harvest the United States and anywhere else for profit. And that's how you get workers being told that they have to be competitive in a global marketplace, which of course in essence means being competitive with sweatshop workers in Bangladesh or prison labor in China. So the staggering inequality of wealth is matched by a staggering inequality of power and inability on the part of the citizenry to influence the centers of power. All the legislation becomes written by lobbyists, the in this form of legalized bribery, you can't get elected unless you serve corporate interests. This is how you get a figure like Obama, who functions in essence as a brand, and a very effective a brand for the corporate state. So, again, we're very far down that road. I mean, that kind of reconfiguration, that destruction of the working class, which is pretty much over, the assault on the middle class, that's what the United States is going to look like. We were talking about neo-feudalism developing. If we look and go back to feudalism as it broke down, Morris, if you could comment on that, what parallels do we see developing as our current system falls apart compared to when feudalism fell apart? Yeah, those are important questions because these are large-scale socioeconomic formations. And, I mean, a lot of what I've argued also tends to follow the world systems analysis school Emmanuel Wallerstein and Christopher Chase Dunn, basically people who say that, you know, for whatever reason, it was around 1500 that capitalism really emerged, and it looks like its arc of existence is about 600 years. In other words, the real story, as far as I can make out of the 21st century, is the slow disintegration of capitalism worldwide. And there are various things that could happen as a result, which make all of this fascinating. At the end of the Middle Ages, you did have not only the emergence of an alternative, that is a capitalist socioeconomic formation, but also the falling apart of those other institutions, which included the Catholic Church in the face of the Reformation, the laws of divine right, and so on. All that began to disintegrate. One thing that happens 
a Dutch historian by the name of Johan Hausinger wrote a book called The Waning of the Middle Ages, in which what he talked about was the widespread phenomenon of psychological depression at the end of the Middle Ages. You can see it also in a play in Shakespeare's The Tempest, for example, which is written around 1600, and everybody's just sort of hanging on the edge of an abyss. It's quite a brilliant play. I mean, Shakespeare got that right, and he was living through it. And what happens is that lives are defined and psyches are defined by those systems, and then the systems come apart, and people lose any sense of meaning, and so there's a widespread kind of depression. I feel that in the air when I'm in the United States. I don't feel it, for example, in Mexico. It's where I live. Don't feel it so much in Canada where I am right now. But when I walk around the United States, there's a feeling of spiritual defeat. I mean, it's almost palpable in the air. And it's because the American dream has crumbled and nobody knows what that means. And so there's a kind of crushing of the spirit. You don't know where to turn to. So that's what happens toward the end. Now, we are witnessing that same process, I believe, happening with capitalism now, and it will take most of the century to work itself out. But that opens the possibilities for what the alternatives would be. One to me is, I mean, the phenomenon that I call a dual process is that as capitalism disintegrates, you have the emergence of alternative experiments. For example, Spain, which is suffering this severe austerity program, has a president, Rajoy, who doesn't know anything. All he knows to do is to just borrow more money from the EU and then give the money to rich people, which doesn't exactly solve anything of Spain's economic problems. He has no vision whatsoever. And in fact, most leaders of capitalist countries don't. They just say, well, we'll keep doing what we're doing. Growth is the answer. Growth is precisely the problem. But they think it's the answer, and so they keep doing what they're doing. As a result of the failure of Spain's economy and the rise of austerity measures and so on, as of a year ago, I don't know what it is right now, but as of a year ago, there were 325 alternative experiments in energy, currency, time-sharing, all kinds of things. And, of course, secessionist movements, the Basque Country and Catalonia, but alternative experiments in which people are trying to figure out a different way to live. And that's the hopeful sign on the horizon that as capitalism disintegrates, you'll have the emergence of alternative types of businesses that are steady state, nonprofit, and so on. That's one possibility. But the other possibility is that the horrible thing, the 1% that Chris was talking about a moment ago, they don't care what you call the system. They don't care if it's called capitalism or vegetarianism or computerism. But what they want to do is maintain the relations of power that they're in charge. That's what they want to do. They don't care what the label is and they don't care what the economic system is. And so a neo-feudal situation in which they remain in charge and you have this Orwellian scenario that Chris just described, that's fine with them. And in order to maintain that, what you have to do is have predator drones cruising American cities that apparently from a height of 2,000 feet can read watches off of people's wrists. I mean, that kind of control. And then what they're going to do is make it impossible for these alternative experiments to flourish. So you're going to get the ultimate totalitarian state. That may be more of a struggle between that neo-feudal configuration and these 
alternative experiments. That particular struggle may be a much more significant one than the eclipse of capitalism, which in retrospect might look, gee, that was pretty easy, <laughs> you know, because basically the power elite doesn't care what you call it and they don't care what the economic arrangements are as long as they're in charge. That's the issue. We seem to categorize these 1% elites often. We just throw these terms around saying, hey, this is just a corporation. This is just 1% of a extremely, extremely rich, rich society. Who are these people? Why do they not care? And I guess take that a step forward. Can we develop a system with these people still around? I mean, they're obviously going to burn themselves to the ground. It's obvious. It's something that's going to happen. Do we need to keep these kind of political systems in place to build a new one? Do we need to totally reinvent the political ideas that we have right now? What will it look like moving forward? It won't look very good. I mean, we're collapsing just like any other civilization throughout history. Go back and read Redmond or Tainer. I mean, uh, civilizations have their moments when they rise and reach maturation and they fall. The difference is that this time we're going to take the whole planet with us. And when civilizations decay and die, they physically break down, they fragment. And you get, I think what we're seeing, this retreat by a very frightened population from reality, an inability to confront reality, this reality, an inability to acknowledge the self-evident fragility and the impending collapse. And at that point, what elites do, and this has, again, been replicated throughout human history, is the phrases and the jargon that they use to describe reality no longer correspond to the real. You have this vast gap between language and fact. At the same time, they physically remove themselves into isolated compounds like Versailles or the Forbidden City, or a writer for the New Yorker called the way elites live in the United States as if they're in Richistan. I mean, they don't fly commercial airlines. They, they can engage in this kind of unchecked hedonism and the greater and greater accumulation of wealth because, of course, that 1% is accruing even more wealth while the bottom 80% of Americans are living on less and less. They unplug themselves from reality. So they don't understand the suffering of the masses who are then repressed with greater and greater ferocity and as resources are exploited with greater and greater philosophy. I mean, that's what the tar sands are about. That's what's drilling. When you, the summer Arctic sea ice melts, they look at it as a business opportunity. They go up and drop half billion dollar drill bits in the Arctic Sea to mine the last vestiges of oil, natural gas, fish stocks, and minerals. I mean, it's insane. The Roman Empire fell this way. The Sumerian Empire fell this way. The Mayans fell this way. It's not a new phenomenon. What's new is that there's no other place to migrate to. There's no other place to go to. As, as the food shortages begin and the water shortage begin and the mounting poverty begins, we are going to have this kind of Hobbesian scramble for subsistence, which is going to be very, very frightening, coupled, of course, with global warming, rising sea levels. And that's where we're headed. And as the complex systems, as Tainer calls them, collapse, then you fragment into kind of monastic enclaves, some of which will survive better than others. But I mean, unless there's a radical reconfiguration of our relationship to the ecosystem, and unless we jettison 
the absurd belief that limitless expansion, which is the engine of capitalism, is the driving sort of model for industrial civilization, we're finished because the very techniques that are used to expand the economy, which is primarily debt and exploitation of resources that are uh, harder and dirtier to extract, accelerates the very disintegration itself. This is an extraordinary period for America's economy. Over the past few weeks, many Americans have felt anxiety about their finances and their future. I understand their worry and their frustration. long time now there's been too much secrecy in this city that era is now over starting today every agency and department should know that this administration stands on the side not of those who seek to withhold information but those who seek to make it known let me say it as simply as I can transparency and the rule of law will be the touchstones of this presidency. The Justice Department has admitted to seizing the, the work, home, and cell phone records of almost 100 Associated Press reporters and editors. Listen, I've been calling White House press offices back to Nixon, and I just asked the first person who answered the phone, you know, what's your name? And immediately was, what do you want that for? And I literally had people hang up. They wouldn't say who they were. I mean, you don't know if you're talking to a secretary, an intern, or, the, or, or a press secretary, or somebody who walked by and picked up a telephone. And since then, I and many other journalists have observed that this administration, despite its public rhetoric, has repeatedly and continually been very difficult to deal with. I rate them worse than the Bush administration. They're behaving much more like a corporation than like the people's government. This is the most transparent administration in history. Uh, and yeah, I can document how that is the case. A lot of people are very concerned mm -hmm. that your administration now believes it's legal to have drone strikes on American citizens and whether or not that's specifically allowed with citizens within the United States. And if that's not true, what will you do to create a legal framework to make American citizens within the United States know that drone st strikes cannot be used against American citizens? Well, uh, first of all, I, I think uh, there has never been a drone used on an American citizen on American soil. And the, you know. By one count, President Obama has already used unmanned CIA drones to strike more than 300 suspected terrorist targets, even more than his predecessor. But today we learn just how much authority the administration believes it has to kill without trial or evidence suspected terrorists even American citizens. A newly disclosed Justice Department document says American citizens tied to al-Qaeda can be killed if, quote, an informed, high-level official believes the target poses an imminent threat. But the document says it, quote, does not require the government to have clear evidence. We're going to lead by shutting down Guantanamo and restoring habeas corpus in this country so that we offer them an example. Uh, Americans from all walks of life are continuing to feel the effects of the financial crisis. It is true that this crisis included failures by lenders and borrowers, by financial firms, by governments and independent regulators. But the crisis was not a failure of the free market system. And the answer is not to try to reinvent that system. It is to fix the problems we face, make the reforms we need, and move forward with the free market principles that have delivered prosperity and hope to people around the world. The 
Clinton Global Initiative gets so much done, but my first question for you is, why help other people? <laughs> What's in it for you? Suppose you're an American and you're worried about growth in the American economy. Mm -hmm. So we're 4% of the world's population, we've got about 20% of its income, we've got to sell something to somebody else. The more you reduce poverty overseas, the more you increase education and improve healthcare and empower women and girls, the more you will have growth overseas, the more there will be global growth, the better off Americans will be. You're listening to episode number 60 of The Extra Environmentalist. Today we're talking with Chris Hedges and Morris Berman. These have become systems of death in a theological sense. And the fact is most people are not aware of what's happening. That's absolutely right. They remain utterly entranced by these electronic hallucinations, which not only have the ability to create a false reality, but are very effective at stopping them from thinking. That's why I don't own a TV, I don't tweet, I don't have a Facebook page, I don't have a web page, because I've built walls around my life so that I read every night. But that severance from a print-based culture into a culture dominated by images, and these images are produced by corporations for the most part, has created, a, certainly within the United States, a country of idiot savants. And one of the things that's interesting about all that electronic stuff, the uh, hardware and the uh, imagery and so on, is that along with it comes a propaganda that says this is progress. To have this equipment and to have access to these images and so on, this is to know what's really going on. It's to be on the cutting edge, you know, of all this stuff. And, you know, people walking around the streets, even Vancouver here, glued to smartphones, I, I just have to shake my head, you know, because it, everything's upside down. If you really, really wanted to be intelligent, you would take that thing and throw it in the ocean and basically do exactly what Chris is talking about. Cut yourself off from all that rubbish and sit down and read about the decay of societies or, or even uh, David Stockman's recent New York Times article called Sundown in the United States. I was amazed that Times ran such an article, you know, because, boy, talk about one medium that's in denial. The New York Times has to be at the top of the column, you know. But, I mean, this is exactly it, where reality gets completely inverted and people are entranced by instead of political power, I've got personal power because I hold a gizmo in my hand. I mean, what could be more delusional? Well, it's not personal power. I mean, it's the illusion of power. Sure. Uh, it's like voting on American Idol. Somebody called it participatory fascism. <laughs> you get to vote and participate in the meaningless and the irrelevant. Right. Participation in the actual mechanisms of power that determine how you live your own life are completely shut off to you. Right, but the lingo is one of personal empowerment because you can take this gizmo and order a pair of jeans or something like this. You, you have this personal power to control your life in this very, very limited way, and that's the illusion of a kind of empowerment. But I agree with you, it's no power at all. Well, you have the power of a consumer. Yeah, right. You don't have the power of a citizen. Right. Sheldon Wolin in his book, Democracy Incorporated, I think nailed this very well. He talked about, in what he calls our system of inverted totalitarianism, the most effective forms of political control 
or what leads to political passivity is precisely this illusion. And it's buttressed by access to credit, which of course now is drying up, and mass-produced uh, cheap consumer products. And those become the two major political pacifiers. He's quite ill now, but I asked him a couple years ago, what happens when there is no credit? What happens when those mass-produced goods aren't cheap anymore? Does your system of inverted totalitarianism transform itself into a more classical form of totalitarianism, which he said was probably what would happen. And I think that what we've seen is the dystopian vision of a Huxley, uh, which is really about hedonism and consumerism and consumption as a form of political control, as that's no longer sustainable, is giving away to the dystopian vision of Orwell, which is a much more ruthless and overt form of control, the sort of iron fist torture, I mean, drones in the skies, stripping of civil rights, criminalizing of all forms of dissent. And so it turns out that there was often that debate, which they were both right. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right that we're evolving in that direction. But there's still, I think, the dominance of the Huxley model. And what's made possible is that, well, you know, I run a blog and a lot of people write in and they say, I feel very isolated because when I try to raise any of these issues at work or in, at home with my family or friends or people in the neighborhood, that's assuming I have any relationship with people in the neighborhood, usually I don't, but when I try to raise these issues, immediately there's a reaction of, well, you're being negative. This is negativity and that won't get us anywhere. And so critique or even the, the raising of an eyebrow or a question has become for, I would say, at least 90% of the American public, negativity and we don't want to hear about it. And, you know, that's drones seem to me to be an overkill in that situation because everybody's their own personal drone. They, they've got this thing hovering over them that we're not going to talk about that. And finally, finally, it doesn't matter that there's this tiny, tiny sliver of the population that does read at night and that doesn't own a TV and that does want to disconnect from all this. They can't make any difference because if they walk out of the house and just go up to somebody and say, do you know who Bradley Manning is? Which actually there was an article on Counterpunch about a month ago where a woman tried to do this. Do you know who Bradley Manning is? Something like that. And basically she just got blank stares. Nobody had any idea whatsoever. Well, nobody knows what the NDA is either. That's right. But, but that doesn't mean that things won't blow up. What will happen, and this certainly is what happened when I covered the war in Yugoslavia, is that things blow up, but nobody has any kind of rational understanding as to why. And that's very dangerous. And I think that the elites know that the material you know, status or the material consumption of the average American, indeed average person in an industrialized world, is going to continually deteriorate. And Marx was right in the sense that unfettered, unregulated capitalism is a revolutionary force. It knows no limits. So that it commodifies everything until exhaustion or collapse. Human beings are commodities. The natural world is a commodity. And certainly education is a commodity. Right. The university is entirely commodified now. The problem is that built within that system, and again, you know, let's go back to Marx or Karl Polyani, is an inevitable self-annihilation because they will, I mean, literally 
they will consume the ecosystem until there's nothing left to consume, at which point we're all going down. And when a society checks out, and if you look at the twilight period of empire, whether you're reading Cicero, whether you're going back and reading Joseph Roth at the end of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, it's all the same, where the problems that face empire are so huge and insurmountable that people willingly retreat into a kind of fantasy. So it all becomes Easter Island writ large, where you settle this 64-square-mile island in the 5th century, there's plenty of water, and you can sustain yourself with seafood and Chilean wine palms, and you create a hierarchy, a caste of priests and nobles. The population swells, the natural resources begin to disappear, the forests are devoured, the soil is eroded, more land is cleared for firewood, you get an explosion of a rat population, the exploitation of the wildlife kills it off. Doesn't sound good. And what happens at the end? They spend all of their time creating what anthropologists call a kind of crisis cult where they're building these giant stone monoliths and killing each other. And I think that in some ways, because we are unable to confront what's happening to us. We're essentially creating, and you talked about these electronic hallucinations and this false sense of empowerment, we're creating our own idols to worship as the world itself disintegrates around us. And that, I think, is what scares me the most, because then when things finally do collapse and you're unprepared emotionally and psychologically, you lash out with a kind of frenzy, violent frenzy and insanity. Again, let's go back to the war in Yugoslavia. This is what happened. I mean, the war was caused by the economic meltdown of Yugoslavia. Same with Weimar. But people didn't understand the forces around them, the kind of liberal elite, or what defines itself as the liberal elite, the Obamas, are utterly discredited, and the purported values they support are utterly discredited. And then you really fall into kind of magical thinking. I mean, that's when you get ghost dance and that kind of stuff. And I think that, unfortunately, with the kinds of veneer of modern technology, we are not only physically replicating the traditional collapse of civilization, but psychologically. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to bring this back to the question Justin asked a little earlier about the nature of gun shootings, because I see that as very relevant to everything, Chris, that you just said, in that basically these are usually the pundits that they trot out to explain this on TV. I mean, morons like David Brooks, for example, will say something like, well, you know, it's a lone psychotic, and the next door neighbor will say, oh, well, they just seem like a normal person until they went nuts. And and then there will be an analysis of their brain chemistry and, and so on and so forth. And it is never viewed sociologically. It's never viewed as part of a national psychosis. And that basically these things are not happening by accident if they're happening every six months. And you can be sure there will be more down the pike. You know, the country isn't really doing anything about it. But you have these mass shootings going on as a phenomenon of what's happening in the larger society. And 
that you're not allowed to connect the dots in public. It's always the lone insane person. You're never allowed to say, this is a product of a certain type of culture, and these events are products of a certain type of culture. So somebody like David Burks can say, well, there was that guy in, in Norway that went and blew all these people out. But how often does that happen in Norway? <laughs> you know, there's a small thing he omitted in his analysis, and I use the word analysis in quotes. But this is what's regarded in the United States is almost an intelligent approach. One might say that for stupid people, somebody like David Brooks is considered a smart person. And that's the framework. And so we take this as an intelligent analysis. It's not an analysis at all because you're not looking at it as a cultural phenomenon. And these shootings are not accidental. And there are certainly going to be more of them as time goes on. Well, they're almost all carried out by white men. And I think that Ishmael Reed and Michael Moore and a few other people nailed it when they said that the reason there'll never be gun control is because of black people. And we see it with the Newtown shooter. It's this kind of survivalist sense that things aren't going well, this kind of fear coupled with rage, coupled with a sense of impotence. And, you know, we just have sat through now this congressional debate over limiting, in essence, assault rifles, you know, magazines with 30, we're, we're not, we're, it's not going to go through. Congress can't get it through. That's right. And, and I think that the issue is one of feelings of powerlessness coupled with a deep fear, which in the United States is fed by this undercurrent of racism. And you see it with the rise of hate groups when Obama got elected. I mean, look, only 11 percent of white males in the state of Mississippi voted for Barack Obama. And that wasn't a decision based on policy. So the explosion of the gun culture and the explosion of shootings, including random shootings, and we've seen, I think, over 1,500 shootings since this school massacre in Connecticut, is a symptom of impotence and polarization, especially based along lines of race. So I wanted to ask both of you that as you're seeing this story continually exhaust itself and break down that the mainstream is putting forward, whether it's explanations of why there's so many shootings or whether it's continual reassurances that the economy is just on the corner of a recovery, there are more people who are starting to question that. And I just say that because I remember a few years ago after the financial collapse occurred in 2008, there were all of these stories that the economy was going to recover. And people would say in comment sections, say on the CNN website, that, oh, you know, it probably will. But now they're just all filled with comments saying, oh, it's not going to recover. This whole thing's going to fall apart. And even though it's still a small minority, for more people, that story is losing what any little truth that it had. And so in speaking about violence, why is it that so many people channel their violence towards their neighbors or other people in their communities rather than putting it towards some kind of system change. What are your thoughts on that? Freud got that. <laughs> Freud understood that. You know, you kill over what he calls the narcissism of minor difference. You know, it takes a kind of absurdist quality. I mean, this gets back to the point I made before. When you don't understand what's happening, then you grasp on to these irrational, ridiculous reasons for decline, whether that's Weimar's attack against the Jews, whether that's the Serbs' attack against the Muslims, whether it's our own attack against Muslims or homosexuals. Homosexuals seem to get it no matter where they are, intellectuals as well. You know, you have these proto-fascist forces that 
blame the moral decline and physical decline of the nation state on uh, minority groups on elements within the country which are always marginal and vulnerable groups that are very difficult that have a hard time sort of defending themselves so we have this very powerful force in the United States embodied around the Christian right and embodied around the Tea Party and militia groups very well funded by the Koch brothers and others which are ready to go should the center no longer be able to hold things together then these forces can be unleashed essentially doing the bidding of the state channeling a kind of legitimate rage and a legitimate sense of betrayal away from where it should be channeled towards gay people or undocumented workers or liberals or whatever and uh, feminists and I mean there's a huge list of people they despise and again I mean that was true in Yugoslavia that is true in most states that fail to function and I think that's also a very powerful element of what's happening within the corrosion of the body politic in the United States. I think also that there would be a thing that if there was a realization or an awareness of who the true enemy was there would be a feeling of impotence in the sense that what are you then going to do about it? Uh, recently, I read that this is 10 years on. You may remember that 10 years ago with the invasion of Iraq, that a singing group, the Dixie Chicks, went on record saying they were opposed to the war and they were vilified and finally recanted. We didn't mean it and so on and so forth. Well, a poll was recently taken, the 10th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq, in the United States about the Dixie Chicks, and it turns out that one-third of the Americans polled say they hated the Dixie Chicks. You know, they didn't hate George Bush or Dick Cheney for dragging us into the quagmire. Oh, no, not at all. It's the Dixie Chicks. And meanwhile, the Dixie Chicks can't get singing gigs in the United States. They're mostly doing it in Canada these days. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, this, this to me was a perfect example of how misdirected you can get. Let's not be angry at Wolfowitz, a name that I'm assuming most Americans don't even know. Let's not be angry at Wolfowitz, Elliot Abrams, or Douglas Fife, Rumsfeld, any of those thugs, those crooks. We're not going to be angry at them for what they did to the country. No, we're going to be angry at the Dixie Chicks for saying that this was a mistake, even though 10 years later, it's clear that the Dixie Chicks were 100% correct. Well, that's what always happens, why people like me and Michael Moore were getting death threats. And when you feel that impotent, you find your sense of power through identifying with the military culture itself and people who challenge the justness and righteousness of that military cause, in essence, are pushing you back into that space where you felt utterly disempowered. And that's why you lash out with such fury. And that's what happens at the inception of any war. That changes over time, of course. But at the beginning, it's why anti-war critics or people who get up and challenge the military project are treated with such rage. I mean, rage is the only word for it. I would come back to the New York Times and my entire phone message bank would be filled with the most vitriolic, hate-filled screeds from around the country. And there would have been more, except there was no more room. I mean, obviously, people had called until they wouldn't take any more messages. So that's always what happens. And, and I think that when you look at, at the culture of war, I mean, especially at the inception of war, where you sacralize the military, then anybody who speaks out about it 
it's not just speaking out about the righteous cause or speaking out about the nation or it's really something deeply deeply personal as experienced by people who until that war started felt utterly powerless and there's definitely a shifting of the narrative that's happening and our media and our political machine is extremely good at producing this narrative but even underneath that there's those rumbles as the narrative begins to shift I'm wondering with you guys as we kind of close out here, what should we be doing as this culture begins to crumble? What should we be aiming for in terms of meaningful action? And then Chris, I know you've been in countries as they've been crumbling and you as well too, Morris. What lessons should we be gleaning from these places that are crumbling and how should we transfer those into our country here? Well, I think that uh, the problem, it comes down to a, a personal choice. There are a number of options available. One option I don't think is very realistic is revolution because the other side's got the guns and you can be sure that the police and the military are not going to defect, which is what has to happen for a revolution to be successful. So I don't consider that a reasonable option. Um, Chris's solution is to you die with your boots on. I mean, you stay and fight the good cause. And that to me is quite admirable. My own solution was to leave. It's not a solution, but uh, it's a decision that I made that I've never regretted. I have uh, just found a much better life being out of the United States and out of that whole corporate consumer milieu. And also in the book I wrote called The Twilight of American Culture, I talk about if you're not going to actually emigrate, there can be an inner emigration where basically you undertake with yourself, your friends or community or whatever you have to try to preserve the best in American culture and do what you can in your own life and stay under the radar and not get plugged into American television and all of that noise that just fills your head with nonsense. There aren't too many options. But the one thing I am hopeful about when I mentioned that earlier about the alternative experiments in Spain, there being as many as 325, I don't really have much hope for the United States. I think that as it collapses as a system, it'll be like the Roman Empire, where if there's a renaissance, it will take place much later and on different soil. And I don't think there will be any renaissance on American soil. But the possibilities of these alternative experiments that are, for example, going on in parts of Europe, they offer some hope for what I call that dual process, that as capitalism disintegrates, a new civilizational paradigm will arise, just as capitalism arose on the ashes of the Middle Ages, so something is going to arise on the ashes of capitalism. That's what I look forward to myself. I mean, these alternative experiments in which they are oriented not toward profit but toward the quality of personal life and so on that's my own hope but it's a long range type of hope because it's not going to happen in 10 years and chris you have to leave us in just a few minutes so your thoughts on that well unless there's a rapid change in terms of how we exploit and what our relationship is with the ecosystem there isn't going to be any future for anybody we're all going to end up, was it Saturn, where it rains sulfuric acid? I mean, that's sort of where we're headed. I mean, I, I, my little kid, my youngest son, who's five, his favorite book is Out of the Blue, pictures of narwhals and porpoises, and it breaks my heart to see him flip through those pictures because I know that if we don't, and I see no indication that we will, rest control of our 
you know, energy policy from the fossil fuel industry, every single one of those sea creatures will be dead within his lifetime. Yeah. You know, I mean, climate change alone. And of course, the destruction of the climate is caused by rapacious corporate capitalism itself. And Morris is right. The only way that totalitarian or autocratic systems are broken is when the foot soldiers of the elite no longer will employ the kind of violence necessary to protect them. I covered East Germany. The Honecker sends down paratroopers to Leipzig to fire on the crowd. They won't do it. Honecker's out within a week. Same thing in Petrograd with the bread riots. They send in the Cossacks. They fraternize with the crowd. They stuff the czar in a railway carriage. He never makes it back to Petrograd. He resigns on a railroad siding. That is how revolution works. That's why I, I'm not naive enough to tell you that it is going to work, but I sort of feel a kind of moral imperative to stand up and fight back against these forces because I'm a father. I have kids. And even if I fail, and if you ask me in a rational moment, I'll tell you that the odds are certainly heavily against any of us succeeding, we've so deeply betrayed the next generation that I at least want my children to look back and say, we tried. And so I'm not going to give up. It can get pretty depressing sometimes, but every little way I will, I just sued Obama in federal court and actually won. I'm not pretending that it means much, but, you know, I go out and get arrested with Occupy protesters in front of Goldman Sachs, in front of the White House. I'm just not going to roll over. I'm not going to make it easy for them, if nothing else. And, you know, I guess we retreat then into Camus and the idea that rebellion itself becomes even if it's not ultimately successful, a way to express one's individuality, one's dignity, and finally one's being against forces that are determined to essentially, in the name of profit for an elite, snuff us out. That's why the Keystone XL pipeline is such an important project. But it's clear that Obama's going to sign the northern leg. And so we really have to confront how are we going to resist, how are we going to rebel when the formal mechanisms of power do not respond to the needs and the concerns, the health and the rights of ordinary citizens. I mean, what are going to be the mechanisms of response? And they're all going to come outside those formal systems of power. And ultimately, they may not be effective, but I think it's worth rebelling. And, and that's why I do it. Robert Bella, the sociologist at Berkeley, uh uh, has a phrase called path dependence. And path dependence is when a system comes to the point that the fix is in, and there can be no reversal of the path it's on. And I think that's the case in the United States. And it's why I feel, uh, for example, that it made more sense for me, for example, just to leave. I think that a Jew that stayed in Germany past 1936, I wouldn't call him courageous. I would yeah. call him mentally ill. <laughs> so there has to be, you know, I mean, there basically has to be a point where you say, I'm pulling the plug. It, this just makes no sense. Um, you know, Maimonides in The Guide for the Perplexed had a great line I always like. He said, character consists of keeping out of the way of fools, not, of, not in conquering them. I can't conquer these fools. And you know, so the, the the question is what you want to do in in your own life that makes sense, and the this programs like this, I think, are important, but they are really important, or the work that Chris is doing, I think, is ultimately important, not because it's going to change anything, because I don't think it will, but I think the importance is that it leaves an historical record, 
that people can actually see. You know, 50 years from now, Chinese historians might dig up my books in some library and say, God damn it, this guy had it right 50 years ago. You know, I mean, look at this, you know. Of course, it, did, it didn't do anything. It didn't make any difference. But here's the record. And that's what I think really the legacy of, of Chris or myself or you guys with this program is that you leave a record so that other people, other civilizations can say, well, this is a good example of what not to do. And that wraps up our conversation with Morris Berman and Chris Hedges. And to provide some additional perspective on Collapse, we're going to be talking with Dmitry Orlov about his new book, The Five Stages of Collapse. We last had Dmitry on our show back in episode number 49, and we started out talking with him today about what it was like to be in Boston with the recent manhunt there. It seemed like a tragedy that morphed into some kind of an incredible farce. So now it's devolved to the point where we have this corpse that nobody will take, that nobody wants to have anything to do with. And the interesting thing is this is somebody that the cops shot that was never really tried in court. The only reason anybody might think he's guilty is by believing the authorities, and why would you do that? And then before that, we had these ridiculous scenes where basically the whole city was locked down. People weren't allowed to leave their houses. People were stopped at gunpoint in the street, all because this one, as it turned out, unarmed 19-year-old was running around and hiding. It was just something utterly ridiculous. It was surreal. They locked down this entire section of the city that was supposed to be the crime scene. There was some blood to hose off the sidewalks and such. But the overreaction was just extreme. I walked past the area and there were people with machine guns just standing there ready to shoot anything that moves. It was just so overdramatized. And to think that this would have been a very calm day in Baghdad or Kabul, you know, other places where Americans have had something to do with, by those standards, what happened in Boston was relatively trivial. And this overreaction is so extreme. It just boggled the mind. I think about that a lot, about a IUD going off in Afghanistan or Iraq or one of the places where the United States is occupying or, or has occupied. I'm wondering what the people on the ground in Boston are talking about. What are they talking about in the bars and the places of where people gather? Is there a lot of feeling about the incident? I have no idea. I, people talked about it a little bit, but most of the people I could hear talking about it other than the media were just basically fed up with the whole thing from the get-go. 
Like there was shock, and then very quickly it turned into this reaction towards what the FBI and the police were doing, and the ridiculousness coming out of the media, and the events themselves fell into the background. So the fascinating thing about watching what was happening in Boston to me, as you mentioned, these kinds of events and bombings happen all the time, all around the world, in so many places that the U.S. has occupied. And the overreaction in the U.S. was really crazy. And it takes me to your new book, The Five Stages of Collapse. And I was reading through that and just thinking, if your typical suburban American reads this, it's so far outside what they were taught in school and what they do in their daily jobs. And if someone were to read that from that mindset and start trying to discuss it with anyone that they meet at a cocktail party or anything, it would completely just not fit into that environment because that's not what most people talk about. And I'm wondering why collapse is such a taboo topic in discussions. Well, one thing would lead to another, you know, first thing you start talking about the possibility of collapse, and then you start discussing all of the other things that are leading us up to it. And then you end up with people more or less in open rebellion. And everybody sort of wants to be clued in to some extent, not too much, just enough. But then everybody also wants to be comfortable for as long as possible. I've spoken to my readers who understand what's happening, what's about to occur. But at the same time, they have the wife, they have the family, they have the job, and they don't want it to just suddenly stop. They have friends that they talk to. They just don't want things to be suddenly become awkward and unpleasant. So they just really kind of enjoy having some private understanding, but they don't really want to spread it around too much because that would jeopardize their current level of comfort and convenience. Yeah, we've talked about this before. It's not really a really pleasant conversation to have around the water cooler at work as you're doing your copying and you're you're talking to your, your buddies about the hockey game. You don't really want to bring up the fact that Western civilization is on the verge of collapse. It kind of brings the mood down maybe a little bit in, in the office situation. Do you think it's useful, though, to talk about these things for people who have never heard about it, perhaps, or you know, to introduce it to a friend and say, hey, check out Dmitry Orlov's book and t- tell me what you think about this? Well, sure, because most of the time people will just sort of look at it and laugh, and I make it possible to do that. The introduction of the book explicitly pretty much spells it out that it's an inconvenient subject. You're not going to get very far in society if you keep talking about this stuff. It just unfortunately all happens to be true. So take it or leave it, do whatever you want with it. But there aren't really any warranties implied or otherwise of suitability or merchantability for any purpose. And I make it explicit. We've been talking about collapse earlier in this episode with Chris Hedges and Morris Berman. And one of the interesting things about your book is you really break down these different stages of collapse and say, here's what this looks like and here's what you do about it. Now, is it a useful mental construct just to say Western civilization is collapsing? I don't think so. First of all, nobody can define Western civilization. It's like the various blind men and the elephant. And secondly, we can't even imagine a large thing like that, a large ill-defined thing, undergoing some process that we can actually get some kind of a, an understanding of on an intuitive level. So what I try to do is say, okay, well, let's talk about money. Okay, let's talk about consumerism. Let's talk about politics and law and order. Let's talk about families. Let's talk about how people relate to each other. 
So those are broadly the, the categories of thought that are influenced by what's going on, and as the situation deteriorates, they become compromised in serious ways that cause people to question things that they hadn't had to question before, and it changes their mindset drastically and suddenly, and that is the collapse. The collapse is, is really internal to each person's understanding of what's going on to some extent, but if they don't have that understanding, then they end up being rather left out because they end up looking rather naive and putting themselves in danger as a result. What I was interested in is thinking about more along the logistical lines now here. What should we do with our money? What should we be investing in? How should I invest for the collapse? Should I put my money in gold and foreign bonds and index funds? Where should my money be going? Oh, it should be going into constructing a living arrangement that does not require money. So all those instruments I've mentioned, there's no need for those? Well, there's maybe some need for those, but not on a day-to-day basis. Basically, you have to figure out how to get your financial burn rate very, very low. Ideally, work out some kind of an arrangement where you you live in some kind of balance with nature, where you get your food directly from stuff you can grow or, or catch or cultivate in some way, or from people you know directly. But what you need is basically a way of getting your necessities without money, because money will be worthless, without trying to exchange a gold coin for tonight's meal, because that's not going to work either. You have to become clever in terms of cultivating a community that will be supportive, that will support you, even when there isn't any sort of a commercial framework that they can rely on. And how do you start getting psychologically prepared for that? Because there's so many people who haven't questioned those fundamental assumptions about society and how it operates. And maybe they sense, there's this general sense that, you know, things are going wrong in the United States, but everybody filters it through these political systems so that you have the Tea Party or the Occupy movement or whatever it is that's pushing for some sort of legislative change. But how do you get psychologically prepared for this collapse that you're talking about? It's different for each person. Some people go through a sort of grieving process as they realize what's going on, as they learn more and more, as they become more open to seeing this reality that is taking shape, as they become more adept at seeing the lies that are presented in the mass media and that come out of the various mouthpieces of the corporations, be it the corporate-owned media or the corporate-owned government, as they become aware of these things not really being true, and as they become more capable of discerning what is really going on, they go through an intense grieving process because they're leaving an entire world behind and kind of going out into the wilderness. And if they're lucky, they will find some people that they can go there with, that they, that they won't have to do it alone. But that is, that is a difficult thing. That is a very difficult transition. So the idea of personalized collapse, I want to kind of explore that a little bit. We've talked a little bit about how the, the grieving process that, that people go through, that, and that's basically whenever your worldview is turned on your head and you're offered another point of view that ridiculously changes what you've thought to be true for most of your life. As this personal collapse happens for each of us, we go through this grieving process. And then on the other side of it, what does it look like for, for some people? I, mean, I know some people might go out and, and find a, a bunker that they want to live in, and some people might go and find a community but does it have to totally transform society on the other side of the collapse as well? Society sort of goes away. Society turns out to be 
people you meet that recognize you and and you recognize them and you spontaneously decide to help each other, invest in mutual self-help on some level. That's one type of society that stands a chance. And then there's another type of society, which is basically middle-class people playing at society in their spare time with various little initiatives and things, trying to convince themselves that you can get there from here, that if you put in a few bike lanes and a few windmills here and there and put in a farm stand somewhere close to the middle of town, that suddenly, there you are, ta-da, issue solved, no more collapse. So those two things are very far apart. People realize what's real, for instance, when they become homeless. And the next thing that happens after that is they begin to look homeless. They don't really care how they look because they're trying to keep warm and their options in terms of their wardrobe are rather restricted. They might become a little bit haggard looking after a while, a little unkempt, because they can't really invest all that effort in grooming that is the standard thing. And the next thing that happens to them is they become invisible. People don't see them anymore. They could be walking down the street, nobody's making eye contact with them. They don't exist. They've just dropped out of society. But then they've dropped into another society that is completely real, which consists of people who do see them, people in a similar predicament. So that's the kind of wormhole that a lot of people are dropping through. A lot of them didn't intend to do it, it just happened to them, but it happens to more and more people every day. So as financial collapse happens and international commerce is affected by it, is this a rapid, fast die-off? Do the lights go out over a period of weeks and then boom, billions of people die? And what would it be like to live through a die-off? It can be incredibly unpleasant. It depends on the circumstance. Like Orleans after Katrina was very unpleasant. A lot of people died very quickly. Or it can just drag out and it's sort of this feeling of malaise that persists over an extended period of time, but it's not very visible It's just that the rate at which ambulances carry corpses to the morgues doubles and triples and quadruples. And that goes on for an extended period of time, after which you realize that a fair percentage of the people you used to know are gone. And it's the realization that hurts. It's not the process of them going away necessarily, because one day is kind of after another, and everybody gets used to everything after a while. So if more people are dying all the time, well, that's just more people dying all the time. It's just a statistical effect. But then when you realize that half of everyone that you used to know is gone, then that is actually painful. So one thing that we've seen, especially with this Boston bombing, or with any kind of large-scale tragic event, is the 24-hour news cycle kicks in real hard. I'm wondering what it's going to look like as collapse becomes more and more of a reality and, and the news media can no longer ignore the fact that there are people that are becoming invisible on the street and people are becoming more unkept. And we see the gradual process already. Uh, Unemployment lines are longer. Uh, Unemployment has become a large issue in in the national scene. How does the media respond to this situation? Do they continue the 24-hour news cycle? Do they ignore the problem? Where's their response? Oh, it's absolutely arbitrary. What you have to understand is that the official media, the old media, is 100% fake. It's basically whatever the advertisers want. It's whatever they think is going to move product. So if showing homeless people doesn't move product, homeless people don't exist. It doesn't matter whether the streets are full of them or not. They don't exist by corporate decision. And so 
there's no reason to expect that the corporate media will be anything other than some kind of eye and ear candy that is used to sell advertising. That is its function, and the only other thing it might do is prop up the government. So if there's something really embarrassing going on that the government doesn't want to talk about, then you will have a major distraction of some sort that the media will stage. So to the very end, the media is going to be that spokesperson for the corporations. At the very end, they are not going to be addressing the issues that are happening around the street. They have a dual mission, sell advertising and shill for the government. And that's what they'll do. And so one clear example of financial collapse as it plays out has happened recently in Cyprus. And people had their money in banks and the banks were closed for an extended period of time. And people had to figure out what to do. There were stories coming out of Cyprus where suddenly signs went up everywhere saying cash only because credit cards weren't working. And people's money were taken and converted into these shares in the worthless banks. So essentially their money was taken entirely. And yet there's still people in European countries that have very similar financial situations to Cyprus. They keep their money in the bank. Why do you think that is? They really don't have much of a choice, do they? Once you have money, you're stuck as part of the money system. It's not like you can really cash out. There is no mechanism for cashing out. That's long gone. If you want to make use of your money, you have to plan ahead and do it ahead of time and accumulate skills and inventory and relationships, which is a a painstaking process. You have to build trust with other people, other people who realize that, you know, money is no good and that they have to uh, figure out some other way to interact and to get what they need. So when the banks are closed and when you swipe your card and nothing happens, it's the wrong time to start thinking about it. So in your book, you talk a little bit about what our commercial exchange system of the future could look like and will need to look like for people to survive. Could you go into detail about that? I don't think that there will be an overall scheme. It'll all splinter into little pockets of people, little communities, basically groups of people who trust each other to the exclusion of other people whom they don't trust. And they will probably figure out some way of trading based on valuables or stock and trade or or other things they can pledge to the common cause of, of having some kind of a local exchange. And I go into a great deal of detail about that in the book. But things like that, systems like that, have been around for a very, very long time. They can work quite well. They don't depend on any central authority because they're based on interpersonal trust and they're based on circles of trust that are relatively exclusive so that you have to earn the trust of the people within it. And that is probably going to be the pattern for those who want to trade in the sort of disrupted environment that we're going to have In the book, I go into a great deal of detail about what happened in Russia during the 90s, where people were forced to deal with people they didn't trust. And the result was a very dominant mafia that was required to be part of just about every financial transaction. Because if you just dealt with people you didn't trust, but didn't have mafia backup, then you just got swindled or robbed or even killed. Now, we talked on the show last time we interviewed you about the mafia and about how that role of the gangster government could, could, could definitely take the place of uh, the government. My question is to you, 
uh, historically, um, as civilizations have collapsed, we've seen the church emerge as a governing body. We've seen the Catholic Church emerge as a, a very structured body providing law and, and rule. Could you see that happening again? Could the Catholic Church again emerge as a, a governing body? In the predominantly Catholic countries, that could happen to to a certain extent. I don't want, I don't know to what extent it could happen. In other parts of the world that, you know, which are predominantly Muslim, religious authorities will definitely step in and, and try to impose order. In many other places, though, there really isn't any religion that could claim to be sufficiently authoritative and sufficiently universal to play a role like that. So I think that religion will have a role to play within religious communities, of which there are already quite a few examples, and there will probably be more of them, and within countries that are homogeneously religious in a particular direction. But overall, I don't think that there will be such a, you know, such a global phenomenon as you had in the, in the Middle Ages, where the Catholic Church was basically the de facto government of, of, of uh, much of uh, Western Europe. There's a lot of people out there, a lot of uh, financial shows, a lot of bloggers and writers that are talking about every single move in financial markets. You know, look at this bond yield curve that's moving in this direction, and that signals that, you know, this potential thing is going to collapse in like six months and then this bank will fail because of it. Is there really any value in watching market movements like that? Is there any real data or analysis that can be developed out of that? In the short term, it's just fractal noise and it's meaningless. But there's this tendency to try to explain these inane market movements by means of equally inane news stories, which is what the financial press is all about on a daily basis. But over a much longer term, there are things to be understood by, by watching how markets behave, especially markets such as the precious metals market. You know, the action there is pretty interesting because, you know, they tried to crush the price, but what really got crushed was the inventory because as soon as the price dropped, everybody started snapping up gold and silver like crazy so that now you can't even get it. You can get paper equivalents but if you try to take delivery of the metal, it turns out the, the cupboard is empty. And so that, that's kind of a, a very interesting trend, medium-term trend. And then, of course, longer-term trends can be quite unmistakable. So, you know, the country going into debt at a, a fairly constant rate of $100 million an hour or so, there are very few ways to, to misinterpret that. You know, the country is going broke. So that's definitely worth watching. So currently we live in a very much a corporate state where corporations rule the government in many ways and are in our daily lives and the media and all those different things. Is it possible to see a corporation stepping in and acting as a a governing force. Could we have like a Googleville or a Apple land or something like that when, you know, state and local government or federal government disappears? Can a tiger change its spots? Well, good question. They're sort of obligated to deliver shareholder value, aren't they? By any means. Now, you you can have various public corporations, you can have public charities, you can have public trusts, you can have various things, but they all tend to be very small and uh, they all tend to get funded by people who have access to money. And most of that money comes from corporations, from entities that produce large profits, large surpluses, that can then be a little bit of it can be spent on various, you know, noble causes. So the people who are involved in that, who might, you know, take a bit of money and spend it on something worthwhile, they tend to be warped because of money. You know, there's nothing as psychologically damaging as access to very large sums of money. And so I don't expect very good things to happen that way. Uh, I'm, I believe more in humble adaptations by very local groups of people, 
like-minded people. And they don't have access to this overwhelming power of money, but they have access to each other. And they, if they trust each other and put the interests of the community ahead of the interests of any given individual, that's an incredible source of power that they can harness. And it's even beyond anything that the corporations or the government can oppose or do anything about. And I think that that is how it will move forward in a positive direction. Now, there's a lot of organizations and people who are saying we need to relocalize the economy, build a local economy, and are you know writing tons of, of material on how to do that. What are the first steps really transitioning to a local economy, and is such a transition even possible? Well, yes. The first thing to do is to figure out how you can help people around you and, and how you can help them in ways that don't involve money, which could be really easy, simple stuff. Just figure out what it is people are paying for. Going out to eat, right? Well, don't go out to eat. Cook dinner for each other. It's as simple as that. There, you just killed the entire restaurant industry in the entire district just by doing that nobody goes out to it anymore next don't pay people to you know take care of children just take care of each other's children for free there you just totally decimated another huge chunk of the economy and if you keep going like that then suddenly you have a very very local economy that doesn't even need money to exist so when money goes away your economy is just humming along so just fundamentally taking out the the services and the parts of our, our economy that provide work, work and employment for people by providing for ourselves and kind of making money irrelevant. Yes. And the next step in that, in that sequence, once you actually have a bit of a, a local community that feels its power to take care of itself without the need for you know, these external corporate entities or, or money, is for them to realize that they don't need wages that they don't need to work for money. They just need to work for each other. And so the, the fancy word for that is they, they deproletarianize. They're no longer part of the lumpen proletariat. They don't work for wages. Their time is their own. They decide what they want to do and who they want to do it for. And then things become very efficient because everybody thinks for themselves instead of just following orders. So is this really a gift economy that you're talking about? There's a lot of gift. There's also a lot of barter that goes on. People take each other's needs into account. They don't necessarily want to participate in any kind of a public market. It's really quid pro quo, but based on each other's needs and uh, wants rather than some, some official price or anything like that or market pricing or, or anything of that sort. And then there, there are other things that should be considered as well, such as tribute. In every community, there, there is some number of people who uh, take it upon themselves to sort of be the guardians of the community. And they, they have to eat, so they, they basically claim a certain amount of wealth as theirs, uh, whether you like it or not. And if, if everything's amicable, then they just basically receive their tribute and everyone's happy, or things might not be that, that amicable. But either way, there is some am amount of tribute as well that, that exists in every, in every community. Do the laws kind of dissolve in a post-collapse society? You're just mentioning a kind of government that uh, sounds kind of like a tribal leader or a, an elder taking control of, of, a, of a society, uh, just kind of de facto in charge of the laws or judgments on disputes that arise, which are inevitable in every human society. Um, what, what does happen to the laws? I mean, is, is this type of you know, elder in charge of, of the laws, or is there an elected group of people? 
Oh, none of the above, really. I mean, there has to be some some sort of consensus on on what to do. So if people really want to make decisions, then they have to talk and they have to come to some common understanding, some resolution together, consensus-based. You know, it's, it's important to understand that written laws are very cumbersome and systems of written law backed up by the threat of violence are very expensive. And in small communities, they're very, very unnecessary. So you don't really, in small communities, you don't imprison people, you know, you don't shoot people, because that, that's just ridiculous. The, the worst thing you might do to someone is banish them. That's probably the most extreme form of punishment that one ever needs to threaten. But beyond that, gossip, scorn, and, you know, ridicule, things like that, uh, withholding of cooperation, tend to be very, very effective. And nobody really needs to have the rules spelled out, and nobody really needs to enforce those rules because it's all fairly spontaneous. So that's what tends to happen in small groups anyway. Groups become more cohesive when they decide within themselves to not have any recourse to any external system of justice, because that reinforces internal trust. And that is also something that tends to happen. And in the case of Iceland, a a small island democracy, they actually had a point in the 2008 financial crisis aftermath that they could choose to satisfy the international financial powers or meet the needs of their people. And they were actually choosing to meet the needs of their people and say, international financial elite, bugger off, we're not going to do what you tell us to. Well, yes, uh, they have a brilliant president that was actually on the side of the people, not the bankers, and made some major realizations along the way, such as if you kill the banks, then all of the technical specialists are freed up to do productive things, and suddenly your whole economy does better. This is on a, a very kind of superficial level, but, uh, but he found out that it worked, and it works that way. Major discovery. So lesson for everyone. If banks fail, kill them. Pay off the depositors eventually, but definitely kill the banks. And the bankers can be given a choice of either banishment or jail. I'm wondering how the internet is going to play a role in this pre-collapse society we're going to living in right now. We're using the internet currently to disseminate information. You know, you and I and Justin are, are all talking on this conversation and talking about some high-level issues about collapse. And how does this new technology help with dissemination. We've, we've seen examples such as the Arab Spring and uh, the Occupy movement using the internet to help move these ideas forward. Is there any I- way for the internet to spur this kind of revolution that we're kind of looking for and, and you know, needing in, in for ideas? Oh, yeah. Well, the internet is a wonderful, low-cost publishing medium, really good for disseminating information, spreading knowledge. It's a great resource that way. It is also a wonderful tool for dictators and authoritarian regimes and heavy-handed administrations that are increasingly invasive and and pry into people's lives. And it's a a very, very easy thing to use the internet to prevent political action or to thwart it or to, to suppress it. So what people have to do is use the internet to gain all the knowledge that they need, all the understanding, maybe even make some of the face-to-face connections first via the internet. But then when the real serious work of building community starts, they have to unplug. They have to go dark. It is absolutely key that they stop paying attention to the, you know, the little lit up screen in front of their face and start paying attention to the people around them. You know, I was just in, in Minnesota a week ago and it was very refreshing because 
Nobody ever took out their little smartphone and started diddling it in the middle of dinner, which happens in Boston all the time. It's completely obnoxious. So, you know, in Boston, it's acceptable to prioritize the internet above whoever's in the room with you. In Minnesota, it still isn't. So Minnesota is, in some ways, a better place for it. But that's what people have to do, is understand that the internet is maybe a source of information, but as a source of community, it's completely fake. It's not real. And so what they have to do is build their community outside of the internet, not even using the internet, but explicitly shutting it off, shutting it out. So the internet just then is another tool. I'm thinking of the printing press and Gutenberg's time when the printing press became a viral way of putting out large ideas. And I, we saw crashes of religion based on this, or, or new religions being formed and governments crashing based on that. And governments really cracking down on the fact that people can disseminate information without actually being there. I'm reading this book right now where the fastest way to get from England to, to China was a 60-day trip on like 10 different ships to get there. The idea took so very long to get from one side of the globe to the other. Right now, you know, we can, we can tell what's happening in a second, what's happening on the other side of the world. We can have conversations instantaneously and thoughts that travel faster than light. Yeah, well, you know, that's very nice. It's sort of like people have always done dishes, but now we can do dishes in a nanosecond. We had ways of brushing our teeth, uh, tying our shoelaces and, and doing dishes before, except now we can do it in, in a nanosecond. In researching my book, I, I tried to look at various up-to-date sources and books that have been published recently. And, you know, ex- except for a little bit of science, especially things like climate science, I discovered that old books are actually far more interesting than new books. That, you know, the 19th century had a wealth of thought that is yet to be processed, that is yet to be incorporated, whereas so far into the 21st century, everything is very derivative and shallow and uninteresting. So it doesn't matter how fast you communicate if what you're communicating is drivel. And what most of what I see these days is hyper-drivel, drivel that travels around the planet at the speed of light. And I don't know whether it's any better than the old-fashioned way of, uh, you know, sending drivel by Pony Express. We're increasingly putting out this information, but then when revolution happens, governments can shut the internet off. And I wanted to dive into some of the examples of countries that are in full-scale collapse right now and kind of talk about the stages they're in. You know, Syria, uh, Greece, Spain, uh, and Egypt and Libya are kind of some examples that come to mind. Well, there, there are two parts to it. One is that while people are still connected to the internet, they tend to be very, very passive. They'll do whatever to keep their internet access. And, you know, they have their music in the cloud and they have their friends on Facebook and they don't want to lose any of that. Some some people even get their sex through the internet and they, they you know, don't want to forego that. So they're, they tend to be very docile, not very revolutionary at all. And then what happens is they become internet addicts, and when their access to the internet is finally shut off, then they decompensate and they just basically lose it. They become horrible company and, and, and useless, and, and it suddenly emerges that they have no real friends within the physical space they occupy, that they're surrounded by strangers that they don't know how to relate to, plus their social skills in terms of interacting with groups of people they don't know have absolutely atrophied. So they, 
they they walk around stunned and and refuse to make eye contact and and just basically feel crushed and and irrelevant and and lost, which is a terrible thing. In your book, you you had a quote from Peter Kropotkin, and it was, the future cannot be legislated. All that can be done is to anticipate its most important movements and clear the path. And so if we really take that to heart, what should we really be creating a path for? And what does life after the nation state look like? Well, we should be realizing that the informal economy, the under the table sort of cash or barter type of uh, economic activity is absolutely going to take over. We have to realize that we're going to have little islands of community in a sea of lost people. So we should try to nurture those communities, those islands, provide a space for them, provide land for them, uh, prioritize them above commercial considerations and things like that. Of course, this is not very likely to happen. If, if it does happen, it's likely to happen by stealth. But thinking along Kropotkin's lines, what he was talking about is how government, if it's so wanted, would get out of people's way. This government is not going to get out of people's way. It's going to be increasingly in their face. So what he expressed there is sort of not directly applicable and possibly is completely beside the point. Is community organizing a way to deal with this? There's a lot of people who focus on community organizing and connecting people face-to-face. Is that going to address this broader issue of the dissolution of the nation-state? I don't know. I think the nation-state has been failing for, for quite a while now, becoming more and more damaged and, and weaker and internally conflicted. And I described the process in my book in great detail. And on the other hand, we have a certain lack of community in all of the you know developed industrialized countries that is very detrimental to psychic, psychological health. Uh, that is why we have so many depressed people. Something like a quarter of all the uh, women in the United States are on antidepressants. That, that's, a, that's a pandemic. Uh, now, the way it works with psychological illnesses is that none of them are individual ailments, they're social ailments. They're caused not by people, but by societies. The first thing to do is to figure out how we're going to heal ourselves. And the first step in that direction is you know, finding people around you that can give you a sense of, a sense of belonging, a sense of community that can provide this sort of therapeutic context in which you, you can get out of yourself a little bit, live for other people for a change, get out of your depression, and find meaningful, interesting, useful things to do. How do we get people to believe that? How do we get people to understand that? Living for yourself and consuming for yourself and these ideas of consumerism and selfishness and so many of the very consumeristic ideas that society promotes are, are not the way to go. Well, I, I try to lead people up to it by explaining how fragile their individual self is in the current context where everything is financialized, everything is commercialized. So you can pretty much just step on a banana peel and, and suddenly you're, you're a non-person. Uh, you just go away. Something disruptive might happen in, in any number of ways and suddenly you have no way to get what you need and no way to communicate with people even. So this kind of fragile, pseudo-rugged individual that is completely abjectly dependent on financial and commercial services for survival, first of all, it makes people extremely insecure. Yes, they're comfortable for now, but they're also incredibly insecure. And if you look at all of the population polls and all the research, the level of insecurity causes people a great deal of psychological discomfort. So one way that they can 
get out of that predicament is start relying on developing trust with other people around them and start relying on them and having them rely on you and start figuring out ways to get what you need without this all of this fragility that's built into the whole system. So I think that that is how a lot of people can start relating to what I'm saying, which is by thinking, well, what's making you feel so incredibly insecure? Well, let's address that by switching to a different mode, which will make you feel increasingly secure because you will rely on people you can trust. So we come into contact with a lot of people through our show who realize that society is crumbling. And I see more people in my daily life who are also coming to that realization, even if they haven't fully described it yet. And so for people who do realize that, how do you opt out of a society that's falling apart without being left isolated and alone? It's hard to do that staying in one place. Not everybody has the resources to do it, but one way to do it is to just go someplace where people are surviving on less than a dollar a day, and if it wasn't for society, they'd be dead, and just look around and see, if you, see how cheaply you can live there. You know, you will need some creature comforts. You won't be able to quite make it to the levels of subsistence at which the local population lives, but you can come close. And you, you can't become one of them, but you can, you can be with them for a period of time and discover a completely different mode of existence. Then you can come back and bring it with you. So that's one way to do it. That's just one suggestion. Another is, is to just basically take a kind of an internal voyage, see how far you can simplify your life and your physical needs, and move out to you know a stretch of wood somewhere for a while and see how, how you can get along that way by yourself if that's what it takes. There are various exercises that a person can, can go through. I'm, I'm just mentioning those two because they're relatively easy, basically the, the price of an airline ticket. But there are others as well. So as we get close to closing out here, I wanted to check in on you and your boat and wondering how um, the sailing's going and if you've found any cool places out in the water yet. Well, I, uh, I sold the old boat and bought a bigger one, and now I'm in the process of fixing up the bigger one. I haven't really uh, done much sailing except bringing the boat from Nantucket to Boston, which was not a very big journey at all. It was an overnight sail. But I intend to do more sailing in the future. I'm just not at that point quite yet. Trying to get the book out. And so now that you have this book out, what's next for you? Are you going to keep writing on Collapse? Well, I think I've said just about everything I can about Collapse. You know, I'll still be fielding questions and maybe issuing updates as the situation evolves. But I don't think I'll, I have another huge book on Collapse in me. But I am getting very interested in a few different directions. One is what is going to happen to the coasts, which I know very well, because having sailed along the eastern seaboard and seeing seeing it all from the water and having studied the, the past of, of these old seaports, you know, from, from Halifax to St. Augustine, Florida, uh, and everything in between, all of these places are going to end up underwater in something like 15, 20 years. And that is going to be a big change. Most of the population in the U.S. lives along a strip of land, which is 50 miles from salt water. Majority of people, majority of uh, wealth is concentrated in this area that is going to be inundated by ever more ferocious storms and rising ocean levels, rising tides. So I think I will try to concentrate on what that means and try to process that into some sort of a, a book that's going to be part travelogue and, and, and part historical exploration of, of seaports and, 
and also a projection into the future given the, the best that contemporary climate science can, can offer us. I was thinking about the the context of these countries that truly are just collapsing before our eyes, like Greece and Spain and, and Syria at the moment, and in Canada and across the world, but specifically in Canada, there's a lot of people who really like to talk about the concept of sustainable development for the developing world and bringing that uh, to all of these different countries. But as more people wake up to the reality that that really isn't possible, is there some strategy for sustainable undevelopment? Because I see Greece and there's many agencies who have actually categorized them as a developing country. They've moved down from the developed country status, and that seems to be happening to more countries now. Well, I think the whole paradigm of development is sort of tired and increasingly unhelpful. Develop into what, you know, and undevelop into what? I think undevelopment is basically, a you know, a process of, of uh, turning a place into salvage um, and um, once you've turned it into salvage and, and stripped everything and mined all of the uh, all of the metals out of it and exported them as scrap then you have nothing that's generally the pattern that I've seen places follow so I don't think that you know these development specialists international development specialists will have a huge role to play I just I really don't uh, they, they've tried their thing already and it didn't work so they might as well just hang it up and, and go home and, and try to build something that works at home. And so someone sits down and, and reads through the five stages of collapse. What is it that you want people to take away from this book and integrate into their lives? That collapse is perfectly normal, that it's happening all around us, that we have to learn to see it and learn to live with it, that we can't afford to be sentimental about it. So we have to have our grieving process and get it over with and move on. And, and that uh, we have to actually start looking not at nation states, not at civilizations, not at economies, but at people, people around us, and figure out what these changes mean to them. closes out our conversation with Dimitri Orlov talking about the five stages of collapse. And in talking with Dimitri, he always brings up a certain realism that so many of the fields that are trying to address our global uh, resilience and sustainability challenges seem to lack. You know, Dimitri was saying that there's a lot of people who think you can just put farmer's markets close to the center of town and wind turbines everywhere and then boom, no more collapse. Really, it's about learning to live with a lot less money and reducing your flow rate and monetary needs and learning to work with people close to you and learning to trust them and rely on them in ways that we just aren't used to in our modern day economic arrangement. This kind of theme pervades Dimitri's work, I feel, and he's he's very realistic and, and doesn't really fluff up a lot of the solutions that others might think are 
are reasonable. Do you find that Dimitri kind of puts you on the, a different kind of thinking path, Justin? Every time I listen to him, I know I always start thinking a little bit more pessimistically. Well, I, I wouldn't say uh, pessimistically. I just think that his proposals for how to deal with these challenges are very pragmatic. And he's personally had a really important impact on my life in just uh, understanding the need to keep monetary needs to a very minimum and keeping cash needs low. I mean, that's part of the reason I'm able to do this show and a lot of the things that I I do is just because I listened to that advice for a long time and have kept my uh, cash flow needs to a very low level. There's a lot of money out there in the world, but it's the amount of flow that you're able to capture that really determines whether you've entered that personal phase of collapse or not that he brought up. I thought it was really interesting how Morris Berman brought up the idea that everyone is their own personal drone, that the actual drones are just overkill because now we have all the tracking and GPS and monitoring technologies that people interested in surveillance could ever want. And we're publishing it to Facebook and social networks and all of these things. And, you know, it really is hard to detach from it. But for me, I had a smartphone for a while and I still do. And what I figured out is I just turned it off. I turned the notifications off and I turned it off. And the same way on my computer, all the notifications are off. Um, it was just too distracting. And it's not even the distractions that are the problem. It's getting used to checking those distractions that are the problem. And it, it was starting to, I noticed it and it was starting to uh, affect my thinking and my clarity of thought. And by disabling that, it really made a big difference. But I noticed that one thing I was thinking about is in looking at uh, economies, say, in Africa, cell phone penetration is really, really high there, even though the overall uh, government structure, like thinking about a place like Nigeria, where the government's not very effective and the infrastructure's in terrible shape, there's still a lot of cell phone and cell phone technology. And I think that even though our economic and financial situation isn't going to improve, that cell phone technology is going to continue to improve just because populations are going to become more nomadic. People are going to be moving around looking for jobs. And also people are looking for distractions to get away from that really tough uh, economic reality out there. And so I don't see any reason why cell phone technology is going to slow down. It's just going to keep booming until people can't buy them anymore and can't afford to uh, pay the the bills. But even so, I see the costs of getting you know data plans on cell phones continually going down. And if people in a country like Nigeria have such a high number of cell phones, I think that it's going to continue in countries like the US as well, even as the economic system continues to unravel. I think it's important also to think about the message that Dimitri gave that building community is the one of the most important things you can do now. Dimitri goes on to talk about healing these rifts that have developed because of these technologies and healing these these spaces within ourselves that just they exist now because we feel so isolated and alone. And by bringing people together and by forming these communities, we can begin to make these meaningful changes that can help us bridge this, this gap into the, into the new kind of society that we all need. Yeah, and I think that Morris Berman brought up a really good point in our conversation with him where he said that there can never be any way to address these unconscious programs. So Chris Hedges was talking about the elite and how as the control breaks down, their control will become more explicit and how inverted totalitarianism because that whole trust factor is breaking down. Those control mechanisms become uh, much more uh, overbearing. But uh, Morris brought up how there can never be 
be any way to address those unconscious programs in American society. So those basic things that people hold to be true about American culture can't ever be addressed because people don't even know how to approach those questions. And so during our, our break earlier in the episode, we played some clips from uh, from Obama and George Bush and Bill Clinton, and they all echoed that in their speeches where George Bush was saying that you know the financial crisis was not a, a total failure of the free market system. We just need to go in and fix the specific issues with it in this occurrence. And Bill Clinton was saying that the reason for humanitarian work is to make sure that the U.S. has more markets to sell more goods in. So you're raising people out of poverty so they can contribute to global growth, which is great for the United States, and that it's a selfish reason for doing it. And so those are part of those unconscious programs of American society. And Dmitry Orlov also responded to your part about corporations not being able to uh, become these organizing institutions as our political systems crumble because they're so addicted to the power of money and how that large amount, large sums of money are extremely uh, psychologically damaging. And I think that's really an important thing to take into consideration because we brought up Joseph Tainter as well and his whole idea of complexity and complexity spirals. And as all of these complexities rely on each other and need energy to survive as that energy depletes, then they won't be able to manage their complexity anymore and they'll, they'll break down. I think that in many ways, money is a rough measure of complexity. The more money it takes to do a particular thing, uh, the more complex it is. And so I think that's why Dimitri is saying we have to really find ways to reduce our reliance on money and build uh, local trust relationships with people that we can rely on. You know, we talked about education in the last episode and how education is going to be the stepping stone into a new kind of paradigm of thought. And with this interview, it got me thinking about the fact that education from a westernized perspective is just one perspective. By spreading this kind of thought process, as much as much like spreading capitalism, like or any other governing principle, spreading of education from a westernized perspective enables that perspective all over the world. And is that perspective a good one? Is that a perspective one that we want the whole world to believe in, to work through or work with? And thinking about this got me really thinking, you know, should we th- be thinking about Native American cultures, ways of thinking? Should we be thinking about, you know, Japanese ways of thinking? All these different kinds of thought processes, all these schools of thought and, and ways to educate people kind of got me thinking around these thoughts. And is, is this the most productive and best way to make the world more educated? Well, one thing that Chris brought up is as the system crumbles, there's this kind of violent frenzy because no one really knows or understands these forces. And I think that's something that we're definitely trying to bring up through all of our conversations is trying to understand where those forces are coming from and why they are playing out the way they are. So that way people can approach these in a semi-intelligent way or hopefully an intelligent way as, um, as they see it play out in their own lives. And I think that one of the interesting things that I see is that so many people don't factor in all of these aspects of this collapse narrative that we cover, whether it's the peak oil aspect or the climate change aspect or the financial aspect into their own lives and their own life decisions. And it's not something that you want to obsess over and let it drive every decision that you make or be like, oh, oh my God, it's all breaking apart right now. I have to go you know, move out to the wilderness in a, in a cabin and, and wait it all out because that's not a healthy approach either, as we discussed with Dimitri, but it's realizing that, you know, maybe if you're thinking that you're going to be a condo developer and a housing bubble's bursting, then maybe it'll help you steer in a more intelligent direction. And so because hopefully people can 
make these more intelligent choices because they understand those forces, it can help to bypass some of that bitterness and turn into something that actually is a useful response, as in getting to know other people in your community and learning to trust them for the things that you need in your everyday life. And I, you know, I wonder if uh, we could ever get to a world that Dimitri was talking about, where you need to uh, actually have some sort of a taboo against doing business with people you don't know. Like that's so far beyond where we're at in uh, in Western society right now, in monetized society at the moment. Yeah, because so much of our food comes from places we've never even heard of. You know, let alone not even heard of the people there, but. Who knows where my oranges are coming from? Someplace in Argentina or Guatemala. My apples are coming from Mexico. I don't know the man who made those things. We really are alienated and isolated from the production processes of all of the materials and goods that we use because we can just ship things all around the world and use money to get them. And so as more people start to think about what they can procure locally and through people that they know personally, um, it really will have a very powerful transformative impact. But one thing I wanted to touch on before we close out our wrap-up conversation here is how Morris Berman was saying that when he's in the United States, he feels this spiritual defeat, that the American dream is crumbling and no one really knows what that means. And that's definitely definitely the case. I feel that every time I am in the United States, but it's not something that I feel as much or so much in Canada. And Morris was saying that he doesn't feel it in Mexico as much either, because even though so many ways of organizing life are similar in Western monetized nations, it's not to that same mythic extent that the American dream was. And the American dream is rapidly changing right before our very eyes. We see it everywhere. We see it on the educational front. We see it on the governmental front. We see it on the economic front. And being okay with this change and being all right with the way that it changes us personally and our children and our friends is something that we're going to have to work towards. And it's not easy and it's, it's not something that's quick and it's not something that's fast. It's a slow process that we have to slowly move into and understand fully to appreciate the full depth and breadth of what it means. Yeah, so as that frustration grows and as people feel that spiritual defeat, you see people starting to turn towards ideas of violence more. And there was a recent poll from Fairleigh Dickinson University where they surveyed uh, public attitudes towards guns and uh, and gun issues, and they found that 29% of Americans agree with the statement that in the next few years an armed revolution might be necessary in order to protect our liberties. And 18% of Democrats said that an armed revolt might be necessary, and 44% of Republicans in the poll said that it might be necessary. So in this sample size of the survey, close to half of, uh, of Republicans surveyed, and about 20% of Democrats said that an armed revolt might be necessary. Like, that's a pretty large number. Would you be part of the armed revolt, Justin? I don't think that revolution is the way to go because, you know, you see so many people in society who say that we have to keep guns in order to protect against government, but they have tanks and drones and, you know, massive uh, weaponry, tremendous amounts of funds for weaponry. So I don't see where where those people who say that realistically think that they would have a chance against any actually repressive government in, in that regard. So, you know, you could take your shotgun or assault rifle or anything like that, and it just wouldn't be very successful. So you have those different options that we talked about at the end of our conversation with Chris and Morris, where you do either some kind of uh, external immigration where you move to another country or an inner immigration where you uh, face this issue internally and, and with your family and friends, and or you stand up and, and talk about all of these issues 
and the complexity and, and how it's breaking down. But I don't think that fighting an actual revolution would yield any kind of useful result. It would just be terrible for a lot of reasons. Yeah, because violence really doesn't solve a lot of problems. And out of violence, you usually get a lot of the same kind of thought processes just recycled into different ways. I mean, you end up just with the same kind of powerful people in charge that make the same kind of decisions that are not always in the best interest of the people that they rule and govern over. Yeah, and you look at what's happening in Egypt right now, and the government that is now in place is arguably not that much better than the government that was in place. And even though there is some sort of democracy that's involved in the process, food prices are skyrocketing and people are still very much in misery. And so I think that Dimitri's approach is much better in that trying to build that network locally of people that you can rely on and trust. And that that's a much better way to move forward. But we got some wonderful donations since our last episode. And Maxence wrote in to us from Australia with a donation. And she also said that she's a student at the University of New South Wales. And she wanted to know how we don't get depressed in talking about these issues. She said that through her degrees, she's spending a lot of time uh, dealing with energy, environmental and economic crises. And she's thinking about it all the time. And sometimes she wishes she just wasn't aware of it and could just live like everybody else. And and she wanted our opinion on that. Yeah, it's a complex issue. And I think that it's very easy to get bogged down in these really heavy, heavy ideas that we talk about on the show and the fact that the world is not really the way that we thought it was. But I think what is important, though, and, and what is really the thing that keeps me going on a lot of this this stuff is the idea that there's, there's a new way of thinking that can get us past a lot of this stuff and get us into a new, more inclusive way of thinking. And that's the possibility on the horizon that's not that far away. It's something that we can see and we can touch and we're beginning to see it everywhere and beginning to become a part of. And being a part of that community and being a part of that change that's going to help move the world into that new way of thinking is something that kind of gives me hope and helps me stay motivated and helps me wanting to, to keep pushing these messages out there. But if you think about it and you think about the fact that there's other ways and more more organic ways of thinking and ways of, of being that can make you happier maybe you shouldn't be so upset about the way the fact that you are not going to be able to watch television for six hours average a day or have to talk to your neighbor to get him to help you to move a large box or something like that instead of hiring somebody from another country to send it to you. Yeah, I think that a lot of it has to do with being fortunate enough and comfortable in finding a community that you can work with on these issues. And so I know that with the Village Vancouver group that I'm involved with, our Transition Towns uh, initiative, even though you know there's always issues that come up in communities, I, it's been great to work with them and work on issues related to all of these global uh, energy and economic problems. And so that's a big part of it, is finding that group of people that you can talk to and trust and rely on in this area. And so that is a big part of it. But also the other thing is really putting it in perspective in the grand uh, time scale. And so for me, reading a lot of history has been very helpful and understanding that these vast historical processes are at play and that it's not just useful to get bitter at, say, President Obama or Bush or Clinton or any president in the United States because they are also part of this grand historical process. And yes, they make terrible decisions and you know screw people over and uh, people's lives are 
are terribly affected along the way, they are all subject to these broader forces that are at play. And knowing that and understanding those and trying to gain an understanding of those has been very therapeutic to me as well. And like Morris Berman said at the end of our conversation, it's not like we can really expect to uh, prevent the system from caving in on itself, but maybe there will be a Chinese historian who comes along and be like, hey, maybe they weren't so crazy. Who were these extra environmentalist guys anyway? <laughs> yeah, maybe, look, they knew what was happening. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the historical perspective, putting it all into perspective, you know, the 100, the 200 year perspective really helps helps you to gain a little bit of balance and move back a little bit from the the very close-up, detail-oriented worlds that we live in and are exposed to on a daily basis. I agree with that a lot. And I think the other thing is also taking what Morris Berman said in mind, that there are alternatives and people in places like Spain are getting out there. And I think Morris said there was something like 300-some alternative experiments in currency and agriculture and uh, ways of living. And I was just reading um, an article that's on our Facebook page about this one town, uh, Marin Marinelda in Spain, where everyone in town has a job because they have essentially established their whole community around like a giant commune. And if you read Dmitry Orlov's new book, that's one of the things he says that could be very helpful is not a broad state system, but local communities that use the principles of communes to operate effectively. And these are a group of people who can rely on each other and know how to work for each other and with each other and are getting beyond that individual notion of just a single person or a single family and really building a broader community. And no matter what your political beliefs are on it, it doesn't really matter because from a very pragmatic standpoint, it's working for them when the rest of the market system of Spain is falling apart. And the world is going to change rapidly and those communities are going to be essential Knowing your neighbor is going to be a very, very important thing. Knowing the people in your community who you can share skills with is going to be essential. And so we're going to put links to those articles up in our show notes on our website at extraenvironmentalist.com. So thank you so much to Maxine. I really appreciate that. Also, thank you so much to Lauren out in Connecticut for sending in a generous, generous donation. Uh, Lauren is enjoying our full permaculture episodes, which are now available on the SoundCloud page. We're rolling them out in a very slow fashion, but they'll be available on a weekly basis. Full lecture series will be available each week with a new permaculture talk from the Permaculture Convergence Conference that we sent Kevin to a couple months ago. They'll all be available on the SoundCloud page. To find full episodes of The Extra Environmentalist and to contribute to the conversation that you hear right here on this podcast, check out our Extra Environmentalist website, which is extraenvironmentalist.com. Come over to our Facebook page where you can join a whole community of people talking and discussing and sharing links about the stuff that we talk about here. Find us on Twitter at X Environmental, where the conversation does continue as well. SoundCloud has us as well. Stitcher Radio, you can find us there. Leave us a voicemail on our online voicemail box at all times, the day or night. Yeah, give us a call at plus one nine one nine seven oh one nine eight seven two. Send us a voicemail. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, and so many great news links have been coming in on our Facebook page. We really do appreciate it, and it's been great. So just keep them coming along and sending them our way. 
And so once again, we really do appreciate the privilege to reach out to so many people around the world through our podcast. And we truly do appreciate you as a listener. Also, be sure to check out our video page, which is located on the Extra Environmentalist website. We should have a new video coming out very soon with an extra special message from uh, Mr. Dennis McKenna. So get out there, enjoy that springtime weather, pick some strawberries and can some jam. The weather's only going to get warmer. in Washington, D.C., and we just wanted to call in and say that we were really getting tired of snooping in on the Associated Press and, and other mainstream media sources because their content's just so shallow, and we really only care so much about celebrity news and, and gossip, so we recently started wiretapping and monitoring your shows, and we're really enjoying it, so we thought we'd just embed this message into your recent episode to let you know to keep up the good work. It's much more entertaining than a lot of the stuff we have to wiretap, so thanks, guys. The ruling class always determines the configuration of rebellion, of response. And you see it in column after column, Paul Krugman pleading for a rational response to the economic crisis. I saw Paul, I said, what if the elite can't respond rationally? I mean, you are appealing to a system that I don't believe has the capacity to respond rationally. And his answer was, it doesn't matter, climate change is going to get us anyway. So you have a situation where if you wanted to Uh, blunt a movement rationally, then that would have been a moratorium on foreclosures and bank repossessions. It would have been a forgiveness of student debt. It would have been universal health care, and it would have been a serious, you know, one trillion something jobs program, especially targeted federal jobs, right, at people under the age of 25. That would have been rational. And a parallel to what was done in the 30s when the pressure came. And that would have broken any kind of unrest. But the corporate state is so unplugged from the reality. And remember, these people, you know, when you earn that kind of money, you don't live in America. I think a New Yorker writer called it Richistan. You don't fly (laughs) commercial jets. So I know something's coming. And Occupy was the first, and I was very involved in Occupy, and we can critique Occupy, Mm -hmm. but I was a great supporter of it. The Occupy was the emergence of that expression. And it's there. It's, it's, people forget that, the, you know, Rosa Parks got on the bus, I think, in 19, or refused to give up her seat in 1954 or 1955. The Freedom Rides didn't start till 1961. When you look at the history of social movements, it's not some kind of straight trajectory upwards. And, and I, uh, there's a great book on King and the Civil Rights Movement by Garrow called Burying the Cross, where he nails that out. I mean, there were all, were all sorts of failures, Albany, Mississippi, all sorts of of actions that were taken. So the idea that, you know, it's just one success after another shows an, uh, an utter misunderstanding of how social movements work. It is the ruling class that will always determine whether or not there will be revolt. And when the ruling class, as ours is, is as corrupt, decayed, and distance from the majority of the population, then it becomes very volatile. So something's coming. And I've covered movements. I covered the revolutions in Eastern Europe, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Romania, 
I covered the street demonstrations that brought down Slobodan Milosevic. I covered both of the Palestinian uprisings or Intifada. You know, and, and having just spent two years in literally the poorest pockets of the United States, as a reporter, you know something's coming. But what sets it off? It's usually very banal and unpredictable. So who would have imagined those people setting up tents in Zuccotti Park would do it? You never but know. Can you, and I know it's an act of imagination, but precisely because of your experience, give us your imaginary of how this might un unfold here. Well, something will happen that will tip the balance, and it will be probably completely mundane. It will be, you know, an elderly, elderly woman in Utah is about to be foreclosed from her home and commit suicide or something. I mean, it will be something minor, and people will just say, that's enough. All the accumulated and then, things they've seen and heard. The, yes, it's that spark. It's like the Palestinian uprising. It was caused by a traffic accident, the first one where there were day workers, they were hit by a truck, seven of them, were, the PLO didn't know it was coming, nobody knew it was coming. I mean, I always tell the story of being in Leipzig on November 9th, 1989, with the leaders of the East German opposition. And they said, maybe within a year, we will have free passage back and forth across the Berlin Wall. Within a few hours, the Berlin Wall, as an impediment to human traffic, did not exist. Even they don't know. In the next episode of The Extra Environmentalist, we'll be speaking with Rick Wolf about the potential for a new economic system. The Occupy movement in the United States, for example, was in a very significant way an upsurge of large numbers, particularly of younger people in their 20s and 30s, who were discovering personally, painfully, that the education they had gone through, the expectations they had been led to believe by their parents, their teachers, and so forth, about the jobs they would be able to get with the educations they had accomplished, just weren't there. But in the minds of those people, like in the minds 300 years ago of the originators of capitalist systems, it's a very practical matter of trying to invent form, organize, motivate alternative ways of having a meaningful life that is engaging your mind and your body and that pays the rent in terms of an income. I think you're finding Americans busy now re-examining our national history, re-examining the history books of other countries, looking around in the present for what is a more promising, more viable method of organizing work and jobs than the one that is failing us.
All right, boys and girls, we're here in the CNN boardroom in Atlanta today to talk about a very important issue. Our ratings are tanking, and we need some creative pitches to take our news coverage to the next level. Ideas, folks. I need ideas now. Manson, give me something. What's on the top of your head? Um, um, uh, um, I got it. I got it. How about we send a, uh, no, no, no. Let's follow a crew of African aid workers around doing great humanitarian work doing sexual education and bringing food projects to people all over Africa and making their lives better let's 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 do something real let's do something fantastic let's 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 do something good Manson that's terrible no one would ever watch that and anyone who doesn't want to get fired today give me your better idea Julia what's on the top of your mind how about we send honey boo boo now just follow me here honey boo boo to Afghanistan Honey Boo Boo to Afghanistan. Amazing. What you're what you're saying is we replace Anderson Cooper with Honey Boo Boo in Afghanistan. Yeah, you know, Anderson Cooper is great and all, but uh, Honey Boo Boo is the new face of what it means to be an American in Afghanistan. I'm just saying, I'm putting it out there. Go with it if you want. I'm going with it. That's amazing. Let's do it. All right, brilliant, Julia. Next idea. Who wants to get a promotion today? Jimmy, tell me, tell me what you got. Uh, well, boss, I was uh, running through some ideas, and everything we've ever done with like reading tweets on the air has been really successful. And so I was thinking, why don't we just ask the Department of Defense? You know, they're they're capturing all these electronic communications from everybody in the United States and much of the world. Why don't we just ask them every week? Just give us a top ten rundown of their favorite cell phone calls, funniest moments, you know, most embarrassing snaps foos most awkward pauses and we just do a full hour jimmy that is the most unbelievable rights violating far-flung biggest piece of shit amazing idea that i've ever heard let's do it right now and welcome to uh, top 10 phone calls of the week provided by your department of homeland security and defense let's just go to our first phone call this is number 10 on the top 10 list Cynthia had an accident at Walmart. Well, Sandra, I'm shopping for underwear at Walmart. I just don't know which ones to get. The triple X size is so freaking big, but I'm just such a fat ass. I don't know it. I don't think I can fit into... Oh, my God! I've been falling down! Oh, my goodness! Oh, I fell on the ground. Oh, my goodness, Lathandra, I'm on the... Girl, what you doing on the ground? Oh, Lathandra, I just fell down. I think I broke my... Oh, my goodness, my nail is broken. Oh, you my want me? You want me to call an ambulance? No, goodness, maybe. I, th I think you might have to. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And then, number nine on the DHS countdown. It's the ninth funniest call of the week that has been captured by the Department of Homeland Security Digital Monitoring Equipment. Yeah, Jose, uh, I'm on the phone here. Yeah, yeah, Jose, hold on, I'm going through the drive-thru. Yeah, let me get a double espresso, two milk shots, and uh, a triple latte shot in that in that thing as well. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Uh, yeah, sorry, Jose. As I was saying, uh, I, I'm just driving around here. Uh, 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 yeah. Sir, your order's ready here. Let me hand it to you. Oh, oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, oh, shit. Let me take a sip of this, this coffee, Jose. Oh! 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 
Oh, he dropped it on my balls! Oh my god! Hey, hey, you alright? You alright? Oh my god, I'm gonna sue you! I'm gonna sue you! My nuts just got roasted! And that was number 9 on the DHS countdown for this week as selected by your top Department of Homeland Security Entertainment Officers. And we're gonna take you to a commercial break. Stay tuned for number 8. There's a man in a truck with a cat approaching a river. We don't know how it's gonna turn out, but I can tell you, the Department of Defense does. Stay tuned. All right, more ideas. Samantha, looks like you got something on your mind. Do you want a promotion today? Give me an idea. Here's my idea. Let's go off the the free content idea that Jimmy just had, but instead of monitoring phone calls, let's use drones and just send drones around American cities and just monitor all the funny crap that Americans do. You know, they've got to be doing something crazy. We can call it America's Funniest Home Surveillance Videos. It'll be a hit. I know it! Wait a minute, Samantha. We don't even have to send out our own drones. There's already drones over every American city. We'll just use those. It'll be incredible. So thanks again for joining us on another round of this week's Funniest Home Surveillance Videos, brought to you by the CIA. Thank you, CIA, for all that fantastic content and sending those drones over American cities. Oh, Bob, quit droning on and on. Let's just get straight to the videos. Let's jump right into the video here. Man gets hit in the crotch by a baseball bat as captured by drone number 367 over St. Louis, Missouri. Hey, son, I'm just gonna uh, pitch this ball to you here, and uh, yeah, it'll be a really great way for you to learn how to play ball. All right, I'm gonna pitch it, and you're gonna hit it. Whoop. Uh, ow! Oh, my God! Oh! Ha uh-huh. Always a funny time when a grown man gets whacked in the nuts, and a drone captures it. Well, uh... You know, I walked into this office today prepared to shut down our entire news agency because our ratings were so low. I am confident that we're not only going to make it another year here at CNN, we're going to be the number one news agency in the United States and the world. 